Welcome to the CMS Real Deal podcast, where we take a step back from the legal nitty-gritty and provide insight into issues affecting the property industry. I am Danny Drummer-Brassington, and today I'm joined by Nick Burt and Mark Jocelyn of the CMS Real Estate Tax Team. They're here to discuss the government's surprise announcement that it intends to tax capital gains realised by non-UK resident investors in the UK property. Welcome, Nick, and welcome, Mark. Hi. Hi. Let me just start by saying that as someone who has spent their entire career specialising in contentious real estate, I stay well clear of tax. So, as much for my benefit as our listeners, in very, very basic terms, what are the government proposing to do? Mark? Um, Sure. So, the proposal is that um, from April 2019... Uh, capital gains on commercial property will be brought within the scope of UK tax, um, even where those gains or where those gains are realised by non-residents. Um, until now, uh, such gains have always been outside the scope of UK tax. Okay, so that's quite a big change, and quite a big change at a time that the government is saying we're open for business, Brexit's not going to affect that, and the courting overseas investor. Is that not at odds with with that? Um, I personally, and I think most people agree with me, find that it's a a very odd time to be making this change. Um, The the reasons they give are sort of to bring the UK into line with the rest of the world. Uh, They point out that it's sort of not fair that non-UK residents are tax-exempt, whereas UK residents are taxable and um, they also want to align the position in the UK with the position that applies to UK residential property but I mean all of those factors would have been you know just as good reasons in the past or certainly the first two so there's no obvious reason why this change is being done now and it's going to coincide with Brexit all the disruption and confusion and uncertainty that that's bringing Um, On top of that, um, valuations uh, will be a core part of the new regime, as we'll probably come on to discuss. Um, And the key date for the valuations will be the actual week in which Brexit takes place. So it's presumably going to be more difficult for people to value property sort of as at the first week of April when Brexit is just kicking off than it would be any other time. You make a very interesting point about the valuations there, and I was going to touch on that because... I'm not comparing this to the the Lehman Brothers collapse, but I was dealing with so many valuation points at that point in time when Lehman Brothers collapsed and nobody could give you a prediction of what the property market was going to be doing. And it strikes me that Brexit could be the same, that actually no one's going to go hand on heart, yet we know exactly what's going to happen in the foreseeable future or the, the immediate future. So for the government to pick that date for evaluations, which is a week after Brexit, seems it's just creating a whole heap of issues for for uh, calculating these gains. I, I, I agreed, and, and um, you know, if for no other reason that the fact that um, under the new regime gains that arise or accrue after April will mm. be taxable, um, that valuation of the property on the 1st of April, or if you're an individual, the 6th of April, would be absolutely crucial to you know the, the extent of the gain that yeah. comes within charge. So just to so, be clear, we're not looking at any gains made for the period prior to April 2019. Correct. It's from when these um, proposals come into force moving forward. And yes, yeah. hence okay. the need for evaluation on that date. Okay. I think one of the surprising things from my point of view 
is that this is a massive change to tax policy in terms of inward investment to UK real estate. And it wasn't actually announced in the budget speech at all. It was only in, in reading through some of the budget notes that we found it. Yeah. Um, and I think other people had a, had a massive surprise in that respect. And I, I think it's one of these situations where I don't, I don't think the government has necessarily thought through the fact that the, the timing for implementation is at such a bad point for the real estate industry vis-a-vis um, -vis Brexit happening just a couple of days beforehand. So do you think there's scope that the government might rethink that date and, and push it back or bring it forward? The, the, the latest that we're hearing on that is definitely not. Right. Um, our understanding is that the, the, the people at the revenue that are the running this consultation are, are absolutely clear it's coming in April 2019. Right. And, and the consultation document itself states that categorically. Yeah. But, you know, the, the government have been known to make U-turns. And aren't I mean, there some more changes coming in in 2020 for in, in the tax property tax world? There are. Um, April 2020, um, main change being that uh, prop overseas property companies are going to be subject to corporation tax rather right. than income tax uh, on rent. Not a particularly exciting change in terms of headlines, but it has quite a lot of technical ramifications. And it would make, I would have said, more sense to to make these two changes coincide rather than have a sort of yeah. one change in one year and another big change a year later. Yeah. And, and we know that's been pointed out to the revenue already, but it doesn't seem to be affecting their thinking at right. the moment. at the moment. So there could be a very unusual year in which non-residents will be subject to income tax on their income and corporation tax on their gains before okay. everything's aligned in 2020. Okay, so maybe some more thought and lobbying around that to come. Is there any scope, do you think, for the government to change its mind on this or is the property industry stuck with this and it's just going to be tweaks around the edges? What's your thoughts on, on this proposal? Well, I think the, the, the sense is that it's very unlikely the government's yeah. going to change its mind on the, the overall intention to tax capital gains um, and that the lobbying that's happening is around some of the technical details, making sure that it's brought in in such a way that it is fair um, and that some of the, um, the tests that are in the consultation work properly, things like um, whether or not a company is property rich, which we can perhaps talk about later. Yeah. Um, there are definitely people lobbying in terms of how institutional investors might be affected in a collective investment vehicle, and it's, it is at least possible the government could be um, able to give some relief or some sort of exemption there but I think as a, as a rule they're just going to bring this in. Okay. Yeah and I think any any such sort of special rule that they do bring in would be quite complicated and difficult to design to get right uh, which, which um, you know possibly is another reason not to be rushing this quite as much as they seem to be doing. So another reason to push it back to 2020. Yeah. Whether, whether well, which which be. won't happen we don't. <laughs> no of course. I, I but we'll still keep banging <laughs> <on>. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Um, so the consultation's open now. Um, what's the deadline for responding to it? Sixteenth uh, February. Of right. this so not long. Not long. A few weeks. A couple of weeks yeah. to go. Um, one of the things that the um, I read in the proposals is, is this differentiation between direct and indirect property investment and actually alignment. So yeah. could one of you talk me through through that and and is there going to be a difference in the treatment of um, let me let me kick off. I mean, base, basically, the way the uh, the revenue have approached this is to say, well, 
Obviously, we want to catch direct disposals, which is where someone just has a direct interest in land and makes a disposal. That's the sort of that's the nub of the new yeah. the new regime. Um, but uh, if that's going to be effective, they've also got to catch disposals affected via a sale of, for example, a company or a unit trust, because enormous amount of property is held in that that way anyway. And our, um, typically, property transactions take place through the sale of those entities. So it's sort of inevitable that, that it's going to catch both. Um, the rules are different in quite important but subtle respects. Um, direct disposals, um, as their name suggests, are relatively straightforward um, and uh, you'll be caught under those regardless of your sort of share or size of, the, of your interest in the property. There's no sort of exemption for small um, people holding small interests. Um, and we are hoping uh, that um, direct disposals will include disposals by partnerships or of interest in partnerships mm -hmm. to sort of reflect and respect the normal rule that partnerships are transparent. Yep. But there's some ambiguity in that, um, in the conduct, and, you know, who knows? Um, but, but certainly we're, we're assuming and hoping that that will be the case. Um, moving on to uh, indirect disposals, um, as... Nick has mentioned earlier, uh, these will apply to disposals of interests in property-rich entities, mm -hmm. which are entities which have, uh, or who, whose gross assets are, are comprised of real, UK real estate as to 75% or more, um, and that's ignoring liabilities. Um, and um, the other limb to that test is that you will only be caught if you have a 25% or greater uh, stake in the uh, property rich entity so you know if you're a sort of quote small investor mm -hmm. you're you're thankfully outside of the regime but do you want to talk a little bit about the 25% sure. test? Sure well can I just talk a bit about direct versus indirect yeah. I mean the 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 direct disposal it's clear that the government has the ability to tax those under the various double tax treaties it has um, throughout the world on the indirect disposal it is in the going through a process of making sure that it can tax a disposal of property-rich vehicles, uh, but there is there are some treaties which are older or that are still being negotiated where that's not the case. And of the the particular jurisdictions that are interesting for inward investment into the UK, the, the one that people are talking about is Luxembourg. Okay, as a, a jurisdiction where you may be able to avoid tax on the indirect disposal. Um, there's a few caveats there. One is that obviously you'll be selling a vehicle which will be subject to a direct disposal tax and so there's debate as to whether or not the, the price might be reduced as a result um, and there's also anti-avoidance rules um, in the uh, in the consultation document preventing you from decamping to Luxembourg okay. in order to avoid these charges uh, and on top of that there are also anti-avoidance rules in the in the treaties generally preventing treaties. So you're not shopping. going to be seeing everybody between now and April 29 moving their um, vehicles offshore into Luxembourg? I think that will be difficult. If you're in Luxembourg now, yeah. you're in a good position. If you're setting up a new vehicle, then that's quite interesting if you can make a, a commercial justification for using Luxembourg. If you're currently in the Channel Islands, then you're a bit stuck. Right. So if this property-rich entity, um, the concept that's been introduced, there's obviously a number of um, corporates out there that, that have substantial real estate assets but it's not their main business, so supermarkets are they going to be caught if there was you know, 
looking to sell things, or do you think there's going to be exemptions for different kind of... Um, well, I think the Condoc is pretty well silent mm-hmm. on that. Um, one would hope, I think this is going to t- turn, to my mind, this is going to turn largely on the way that gross assets is defined when we actually sort of see the legislation, which won't be now for quite a few months, unfortunately. Um, in the case of a supermarket, if if, um, if if you can include within the gross assets the value of the goodwill, mm-hmm. um, then that should be very helpful. Um, but I don't know whether you know that those assets are necessarily going to be shown on the accounts. So the devil's going to be in the detail. The devil's going to be in the detail, and, and it might turn on the on the way the accounts are drawn up or, or whatever. But certainly, there's a risk that entities with large property holdings, where property isn't the key part of the business, would nonetheless be caught. Okay. The the alternative way of looking at that is that um, historically we've we've seen certain assets split into opco propco structures. Yeah. And there's at least the possibility now that people wanting to combine the operating business with the property business in order to get out of these charges going forward. But yeah. uh, like everything, it's going to depend on what the rules actually say, and we yeah. won't yeah. know until we see them. Although I suppose if an opco and propco were already in the same group, then yeah. they would already be combined anyway for yeah. the purpose of the test. Oh. You're talking about off offshore, and you're in Channel Islands pretty much stuck I think is what your words were do you think people are going to start to be looking to come onshore and look at vehicles what, what's going to be the options for people if you know, they're not using offshore vehicles going forward okay so this is a I think a very tricky question um, some of some of the reason for using offshore vehicles is to be able to buy and sell something in an SDLT wrapper some of the benefit of being offshore is just to avoid a lot of the regulatory burden that you have in the UK. And a very popular vehicle that we see people using are Channel Islands Unit Trust, so yep. a Jersey Unit Trust. And the reason behind that is it has tax features which are good. So it's transparent for income and a lot of investors can go into it. It's capital gains opaque, but if it's offshore, it's outside the scope of these rules. And you can buy and sell the units with it without an SDLT charge at present. Now. The other benefit to that is it's very, very lightly regulated and the, the sorts of vehicles in the UK that have the same tax features are heavily regulated. So something like a uh, co-ownership authorised contractual scheme is regulated as a, as a, as a quiz or a nurse and, and that's just um, a lot of regulation people don't have to deal with if they're in the Channel Islands. Or alternatively, if you go for something that's much um, easier to get your head around, like say a limited partnership or a company, it doesn't have the same tax uh, attributes that the unit trust does. So there's there's not a, a like-for-like replacement um, if you were going to choose onshore. Mm-hmm. That, that said, there's definitely going to be people that are thinking uh, onshore is going to be better for me going forward because um, I'm going to suffer the same tax yeah. offshore as I am onshore going so forward. Are they going the cost to... of holding it onshore are generally yeah. less. So are there other vehicles currently that work? Or are we going to see new vehicles created, do you think? So, so it, it really depends on, on who your investors are mm. and, and what you're trying to achieve to answer that question. So it's not a, not a simple answer. But there, there's nothing currently that gives you the tax attributes of something like a Jersey Unit Trust that is very, very lightly regulated mm. in the same way that vehicle is. So there's, at the moment, there, there isn't... Um, a like-for-like replacement with some of the things that we mm. see people using offshore. Now, people are definitely lobbying for that, um, but I, I don't know how quickly the FCA is going to be able to get its head 
around unregulated uh, vehicles in quite the same way. Almost certainly not before April 2020. So investors will be trying to decide between an offshore vehicle that works for them but might be costly versus an onshore vehicle that isn't quite as good as what they're used to historically. And when you say works for them, Nick, as from April, works for them but is taxable. Yeah. 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 And I suppose the other factor that will be relevant in sort of coming onshore um, to a sort of suitable entity will be the sort of costs of doing that, in yeah. particular SDLT. So, you know, in certain circumstances you can think of... Think of structures whereby there shouldn't be any SDLT, but yeah. equally there, you know, there, there could be, and that would obviously be a very unwelcome cost. And, and the other costs that I hear people talking about repeatedly are due diligence costs right. of, of having to shift assets between um, two entities, especially if it's coming into a regulated vehicle in the UK, a depository is going to want a full due diligence, due diligence exercise, which is not going to be cheap. No, exactly. There's a huge cost involved there. And I'm assuming that there you were you picked up on the SDLT. There's no proposed changes there that could could cause wrinkles in all of this. N no, uh, not at the moment. But um, one of the sort of side side effects of this is that they, in introducing the, the regime for indirect disposals, they are necessarily going to have to have a regime that sort of taxes the non-resident individual yeah. and basically polices it all. So um, the thinking is, or we think that once they've done that, they've got an effective sort of method of doing that. The next step will be SDLT on sort of sales of shares in right. companies and so on. But you know, let's not wish that too soon. <laughs> no. um, that, I mean, that does that does raise an interesting point because at the moment, offshore vehicles can provide SDLT benefits, um, and you might decide that the SDLT benefit out, outweighs the CGT cost yeah. for me. Uh, but but to a certain degree, you, you're you're having to make a judgment call on how how enduring the SDLT benefit will be. Right. So um, uh, so there's, there's a certain risk there. Constantly watching to to see how it's all panning out, then to and reevaluating constantly. You talked uh, mentioned an interesting point then policing it all. And I wanted to just explore, how are HMRC planning to sort of pick this up and become aware of all of these yeah. deals going um, on? So what we know so far is that there will be an obligation on the res relevant non-resident person to basically file a return and notify the revenue within mm. 30 days. Um, but there's also going to be some sort of backup obligation on advisors involved and I dare say that could be the solicitors um, <laughs> sweating and, brows and already or, and or agents <laughs> yes um, to, to to actually file the notification within 60 days if it hasn't been done by the non-resident so it seems to be something like that is okay, it so they just all. anybody involved in the transaction might end up with a, an obligation to ensure it's it, reported exactly. okay the you talked about it being a surprise announcement and as you said it wasn't in the statement in in Parliament, it was there in the in the text. How's the market reacted to this? Have you picked up any changes in way people are looking at deals? So, so anecdotally, um, I, it, it depends on the types of assets we're talking about, uh, and it, it seems as though those clients or assets that are at the value add private equity end of the spectrum were perhaps um, stalling on deals, maybe re-evaluating the price that they were offering or looking for a price chip. Whereas other transactions whereby the 
the asset was was based on a cash yield income something along those lines they, they seem to go through and, and a lot of people were still busy at the end of the year dis- despite these changes being a shock mm. yeah I don't think our real estate team saw much change in the uh, transactional levels more the, the sort of private equity end of it did yeah. And, and that's essentially, as Nick has just yeah. explained, it's because they're in it for the gain, and therefore, yeah. the, if 20% of the gain is, is, going to be, is going to be taxed, then the, the whole profile of the investment and the timescale changes. So do you think long-term we might see a levelling out of prices between offshore vehicles, onshore vehicles, because there's not going to be much difference? It's not the, 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 tax, the difference in tax treatment to play with when you're bidding for a property. Do you think you'll see a bit of a level playing field, or...? I, I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not great at pr- projecting what's going to happen to values, but I mean, I, I guess inevitably, values will find their natural levels and smooth yeah. out over time as the market, you know, fully understands the the regimes they're in. So yeah. I think the answer to your question is yes. I th- I think and one thing to remember is that there's winners and losers from this, and it seems to me that that some people are unexpected winners. So a, a sovereign wealth fund that is not going to be paying these capital gains tax charges going forward is perhaps going to be able to outbid other inward investors that are going to be subject to CGT yeah. going forward. In terms of UK entities, we think that REITs might have an advantage over um, other investors okay. just because they are not taxable on that gain. Yeah. Um, and we see REITs perhaps being a popular vehicle for um, investors going forward as a result. Huh. So that's quite interesting to see that the market will might change. Um, so is there anything that you think people should be doing now in, in light of the announcement and in preparation for 2019 or 2020 if you're successful in lobbying? Well, I mean, certainly replying to the consultation document and yeah. getting, getting any, any submissions in, um, we, we will be submitting um, our responses and um, you know we'd be very keen to hear from anybody who's got particular concerns or questions or suggestions. And you think that's worthwhile even though the government is quite fixated on what it's planning to do? Um, yes because whilst they are fixated on what they're planning to do I think they are open to constructive suggestions to make it work in the way that it's intended to yeah. um, without you know sort of inadvertent um, sort of collateral damage so to speak and I think they are to a certain extent you know mindful of the impact on the sort of investment market generally and attracting uh, attracting inward investment so you know I think they will be they will have sort of uh, sympathetic ears to suggestions that, that that make it work properly but they're not going to budge much on the yeah. core principles now. And Nick, do you think there's anything you'd suggest? I think that the difficulty people have at the moment is there are anti-forestalling rules in Mm -hmm. here preventing um, uh, investors from restructuring now. But the reality is, what would they restructure into? Because we don't know what the rules are going to look like. So no no one is second-guessing that at the moment. I think if if you've got a current investment, you should be keeping a watching brief, trying to think about whether or not offshore is going to continue to work for you, whether or not you might want to onshore it and how long that might take, especially if you are looking to onshore into a regulated product because that won't happen very quickly at all. And there's a, there's a concern, I think, in the market around the FCA being jammed up with applications around April mm-hmm. next year. I think if you're setting up a new structure, then what we're seeing is, is quite unusual in the sense that 
because people don't know what they should be doing, they're to a certain degree reverting to type and putting in place structures that they expect might need to be um, restructured in April okay. next year or, or shortly afterwards. Um, so I don't have much advice other than to not panic at the moment <laughs> because we, we, not many advisors are going to be able to tell you what you should be doing no. um, in the absence of the rules. Yeah, of course. And until you, until you get that detail, then there's, uh, it's all speculation, isn't it? Mm. If I could give each of you a, a magic wand that would give you the power to insist that the government incorporates a particular amendment or proposal... What would it be? Uh, what would you use your magic wand to ensure that the, uh, the legislation has in it when it finally comes out? Um, well, I, I think one of the things I would hope for, and I'm not, I'm not hugely optimistic, but, but that there would be some sort of regime whereby exempt um, sovereign wealth pension fund investors can, can broadly be put in the same position um, under this regime as they are at the moment um, and, and in particular that they're therefore enabled to uh, invest in vehicles um, but but basically be taxed as if they were inv investing directly. Right. Exactly what the format of that would be would take too long to, to sort of yeah. go into but that I think is not an unreasonable um, you know sort of aspiration yeah. but that would be mine. I would. I, I'm. I'm less confident than Mark that 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 is achievable. Just because for there are some exemptions at the moment for residential property, which the government have said they're going to get rid of, which makes it difficult to do that and both introduce a new exemption for people. But there are there are definitely a lot of interested parties trying to figure out how to do that and how to convince the government to introduce mm -hmm. it. But I. I think. An, an SDLT relief to allow people to onshore if that's what they feel they have to do would be useful because an unfortunate position would be that there might be a lot of pension schemes that are investing through the Channel Islands and Jersey and a trust that are not going to work for them going forward that would perhaps like to bring things onshore but if there's an SDLT charge associated with that they just won't. Yeah. Um, so it would make sense to, to perhaps have a relief to allow people to onshore Great. Well, thank you both for your time and for your thoughts. Um, it's been yeah, fascinating, particularly as I said, I started out, I run a mile from tax, so uh, I followed everything that you said, uh, very interesting, and I hope that our listeners have. And in, in terms of our, our listeners, if you haven't already done so, please do subscribe to The Real Deal by downloading the podcast from your Android or Apple podcast store. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.